0: It began at the opera. Picture yourself in Italy. It's 1836 and you're at Milan's famous opera palace, La Scala. You're in a red velvet seat on the ground floor. Overhead, a golden ceiling. And everywhere you turn, you are surrounded by more red velvet seats, six balconies of them. It's magical. And then, a woman walks on stage. She's dressed in an ancient gown. She wears flowers and leaves in her hair. And she starts to sing. You've never heard anything like her. You've never seen anything like her. The song is called Casta Diva, A Plea to the Heavens, and it can exist only because she exists. She is an otherworldly being with a voice so powerful, heaven is on earth. There is no word to describe this woman, except the Italian word she's singing, the goddess, the divine being, the diva. From Focus Features, welcome to Zoom, the podcast for curious people who want a closer look at the history behind today's movies. I'm film critic Amy Nicholson. And on some episodes of this show, we've explored the history of scary screen subjects like zombies and aliens. But this episode? It is our most spine-tingling topic yet. The diva. A woman whose voice sends thrills through your body, and then chills your veins. When she screams for a chamomile tea with honey. Now. This season of our show is dedicated to revolutionary cinema, old and new. And there is nothing more revolutionary than powerful women who say and do exactly what they want. So we're going to trace the history of the word diva from Italy to Hollywood and from opera stage to movie screen. We'll look at what's happened when music divas have attempted to conquer cinema, sometimes at their own peril. And we're gonna look at the relationship between divas and the audience, the modern fan culture, also known as Stan culture, that elevates divas to the heights of Mount Olympus, while reducing fans themselves to insect level. Like this member of Beyonce's beehive.
1: Beyonce is literally a religious figure for me. Somewhere in the heavens, God literally crafted her. Beyonce is not even thinking about you. She doesn't even care about you. You and your naked ass laying. And Beyonce over here looking, Amazing.
0: So grab some roses and get down on one knee because you are about to learn every last sequin about the divas. Perhaps us lesser beings should learn how to be a little bit more diva, or rather, relearn how to be. Because even if you can't sing a note, you too were born with a diva's determination and attitude.
2: It's kind of true, like you do start off. As a total little diva, like you've got no, nothing telling you not to do all your impulses and go for everything you want. Nobody's stopping you. That is director Nisha Ganatra. And then little by little, that voice in our head goes, maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe I shouldn't do that. It's an interesting line between listening to that voice and not being, you know,
0: a terror in our society. (laughs) Nisha explores that fine line in her new film, The High Note. It's a portrait of a modern day diva named Grace Davis, a legendary singer who does not suffer mere mortals gladly. She can be especially hard on her young assistant played by Dakota Johnson. Well, Dan was asking if perhaps you would want to rehearse at his house instead of yours. I
2: said to his assistant that that probably would not. How many Grammys do I have? 11. Uh huh. And how many Grimmies does Dan have? Eight. Not 11. That's eight. That's very fewer than me. Mm -hmm. A lot fewer.
0: (laughs) Grace is played by Tracy Ellis Ross, and she is terrific as a character who's strong, demanding, and has a sense of humor about it. That was important to Nisha. How would Grace
2: Davis feel if someone called her a diva? I think she owns that word. I think she would laugh.
0: I did notice that you can't spell Davis without (laughs) D-I-V-A. (laughs)
2: Oh my god. Can I use that? (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) Awesome. Owning that word is a big step for female performers, fictional or otherwise. Not that long ago, diva was considered an insult. How did that happen? In fact, where does the word even come from? Let's dig into some diva etymology, which actually begins even further back than that 1800s opera house. We are going to ancient Rome circa 44 B.C. That year, Julius Caesar was murdered, and his heartbroken followers formed a cult. They worshipped their dead emperor, and pressured the Roman Senate to declare, unanimously, that Caesar was now officially a god. They awarded him a new name, too, for inscribing on temples and coins and statues. Not Deus Julius. The word Deus was reserved for gods who had always been gods. Instead, he became Divus Julius, short for Divus ex hominibus factus, gods who were once men. When ensuing emperors died, they too were called Divus, or in modern Italian, divo. These guys had insane egos. Emperor Caligula wanted to be treated like a god before he died. Which means, in 1979, when Malcolm McDowell uttered this line in the upscale, X-rated movie Caligula,
1: Although I have taken the form of Gaius Caligula, I am all men as I am no man, and therefore I am a god.
0: That was pretty much historically accurate. Caligula was legendary for his bad behavior. He could be petty, like when he demanded that his horse be fed oats mixed with gold.
1: Hail Caesar! Hail Hail Caesar! All hail Caesar's beautiful horse, Incitatus! Hail the most honorable Incitatus! Hail! Hail Incitatus!
0: And he could be cruel. He killed lots of people. He killed flamingos for fun. He used to whisper in his followers' ears, I can have your beautiful throat cut anytime I like. In other words, the first divas... Were divos, egotistical men, but Caligula had a sister named Drusilla, who he thought of as his only equal. Hey, hey, hey. And of his sister Drusilla. Hey,
1: Drusilla. Hey, Caligula.
0: When she died, he declared her diva Drusilla, Rome's first official diva. So flash forward to the Italy of two millennia later, and you can see why audiences in Milan did not call their otherworldly female opera singers something like princesses. That word was too small. These women were divas, mortals who had become goddesses. Soon the term spread beyond Italy. Around 1850, two Italian opera singers moved to the Bronx and raised a daughter. Her name was Adelina Patti. But when she grew up, she would be known as Diva Patty. You're listening to her take on Casta Diva. She toured the world singing this and other arias to everyone from Abraham Lincoln to Queen Victoria to Tchaikovsky. And she not only popularized the word diva, she defined and popularized the diva attitude. Diva Patty demanded that her name be printed 30% bigger than anyone else's in advertisements. She insisted on being paid $5,000 a night, before she sang, in gold. She lived in a castle, and she traveled in a private train with embroidered leather walls. Instead of attending rehearsals, she sent her maid, who told the rest of the cast what Patty planned to do. Oh, and she had a trained parrot. It said one word. Cash! 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 (laughs) Patty also openly battled sexism. She lived with her boyfriend unmarried for a decade. Remember, this is in the Victorian era. People got mad, she did not care, and her career lasted 63 years, so she won. Oh, and here's my favorite. The first time Diva Patti heard herself sing on a gramophone, she said, Now I understand why I am Patti. What a voice. What an artist. So by the beginning of the 20th century, America definitely knew what a diva was. And then the word spread to another country, France, and another medium, the stage. In 1914, the same year that Diva Patti retired, The most famous stage actress alive was Sarah Bernhardt, also known as the Divine Sarah. She was known for her grand, diva-esque performance style. And also for her diva-level rule-breaking. She had gazillions of affairs and gave birth to a child out of wedlock. She chased rival actresses with a whip, She had a pet alligator and, like Caligula, insisted on giving it champagne. Oh, and she wore a stuffed bat as a hat. She also made movie history when she became the first person to play Hamlet on film. Yes, thanks to Sarah, the cinema's first Hamlet was a woman. So Bernhardt was positioned to also be the cinema's first diva. But frankly, she was too much of a diva for that. Sarah thought silent movies were a little beneath her. Audiences couldn't hear her voice. What was the point?
3: Even so... Sarah Bernhardt is in fact a sort of important precursor for uh, on the theatrical stage for the filmic divas and an inspiration and a model um, for a kind of theatricality and, and really a kind of physicality.
0: That's Professor Allison Cooper, who teaches Romance Languages and Cinema Studies at Bowdoin College. She says, like Bernhardt, the movie's first real diva was also acting in 1914. But perhaps not surprisingly, it was an actress in Italy where a whole movie genre was blowing up,
3: literally called diva films. The diva films really actually only inhabited a really short decade of Italian film history. And they span from 1910 to 1920. And as you might imagine, This is also a moment in which women are beginning to sort of have questions about their role in society, and they're beginning to see through film other kinds of models of being a woman. And the diva films are really about exploring what it means to be a woman in Italy in the early 20th century. These diva films
0: were known for two things. First, their plots, which were wild.
3: Oh, my gosh. All the best plots. So infidelity, divorce, (laughs) children separated from their mothers, um, suicide, haunting by ghosts from the past. They are, in fact, the plots are very much about um, transgression, women who are really strong um, and their strength comes from their pursuit of their passion. And typically that's some form of love, like an illicit love or a love for a child that they've been separated from.
0: And these movies were also known for their acting style which was even wilder. Here is how an American film critic at the time described
1: it. The acting in these pictures is like the moment after someone shouted, fire.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's not untrue. (laughs) but It's like watching a poem. I don't know how else to describe it. Because these women are, they're working so hard. You know, their arms are flailing around. Their bodies are crashing to the ground. They're sort of, off in the corner holding their forehead in their hand. But having said that, it's important to recognize that um, nobody did melodrama in film like the divas did. And every time you see a melodramatic performance, once you've seen the diva films, you can't get those women out of your head because they are the prototypes.
0: The most famous practitioner of this style was named Lita Borelli, an actress so beloved in Italy, she inspired a lifestyle.
3: She was beautiful. I mean, she had uh, huge eyes, high cheekbones, but she was so famous that the Italians coined an adjective or noun to describe the attitude of adopting her poses and eating like her and everything. It was Borelismo. So all of these young women, she supposedly is the reason that young women in Italy started dieting because they wanted to look like her. So we have Lita Borelli to thank for the introduction of the idea of the diet to young women in the early 20th century. But it wasn't just
0: about good looks and weight loss. Women wanted to act like Borelli because she was empowering. Unlike the epics of the time set in the past, her movies were about modern women facing modern problems even if they dressed like women of the past.
3: Costumes in the films are always extravagant, and so they're typically influenced by sort of Orientalist trends at the time, or these Neo-Greek uh, gowns with the loose folds and pleats, and all of these were intended to kind of convey a sort of ancient womanhood. So,
0: Borelli played city women fueled by primal womanhood. Again, not princesses, not fairy tales— Women born poor in a screwed-up world who faced all kinds of tragedies and still made themselves into diva Lita, a goddess who was once woman. If she could do it, maybe, just maybe, you could too. But in reality, probably not. Italy's diva films didn't last. Fascism came into power and put women back in their place.
3: You know, they represented a fair amount of transgression and a fair amount of pushing one's way through the barriers that a patriarchal society had set up for women. And there was no way that that was going to be tolerated under somebody like Mussolini. And after fascism was defeated that time, diva acting felt beyond dated. But
0: the word diva and the idolatry it inspired in movie fans persisted. I do wonder, though, if if we, the fans, are calling people goddesses, what does that say about who we are? It means that we're the peons. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's so interesting that, you know, going back to the very beginning of film stars, we're describing them in language that's very different from us. You know, there's us and then there's them.
3: Yeah, well, I think that they, they did seem like gods. They play an important role in our, in our sort of day-to-day life and in, insofar as we think about them and we model our behavior after them. But at the same time, they are so distant. We could never actually be like them as much as we would want to be. I mean, there's a one in a billion chance, right? That we're gonna become the next, I don't know who. You know, There's a kind of attraction and repulsion or a closeness and a distance there that it's a unique thing. And uh, it's just a trademark of, of the phenomenon. So when it comes to divas, we by
0: definition are low and they are high. And because of
4: that, there was always kind of a backlash
0: let's talk to christina newland about the challenges of divahood. christina is a culture writer and film critic she recently edited she founded at the movies a book of essays about women and sex on screen and according to her the more fans give to their favorite movie goddesses the more they expect
4: it's always been kind of part and parcel that kind of worship in fact i actually think that that's part of the reason why divas get such a bad name as well i do think there's an element as well of kind of Expecting the people that we worship and put on that pedestal to be gracious.
0: Especially if you're a woman. For evidence, look no further than golden era Hollywood, where, just like Caligula, the powers that be could bestow upon women a heavenly name. They called them stars. But if you wanted to remain a star, you had to behave.
4: The history of star making is the history of men molding women and molding them in ways which, you know, they're completely carefully controlled and schooled, certainly in the old Hollywood star system. But, you know, you can see it like in films like A Star Is Born going all the way back, that kind of influence.
0: Take the actual star of A Star Is Born, the one from 1954, Judy Garland. She'd been part of the star system since The Wizard of Oz, the child actor whose dreams that she dared to dream really did come true at a cost. I
4: wanted to believe and I tried my damnedest to believe in the rainbow that I tried to get over
0: and I couldn't. That's Judy as an adult talking about how she became the diva of Golden Era Hollywood. It's not a happy story.
2: I'm a lady who is angry. I'm been insulted. Slandered, humiliated, but still America's sweetheart.
0: As a child, the studio bosses told Judy to stop eating, to start taking diet pills, to do everything they said, even if that meant working 72 hours straight. Judy did as she was told and got famous, but fame had changed a lot since the days of the opera divas. Judy did not have the comfortable distance of the stage at La Scala, where she could stand 70 feet from her fans. They felt entitled to feel closer to her, to see pictures of her at home. She had to be both huge and humble.
4: There is an expectation that female stars, no matter how much graft they've done, or where they've come from, how hard they've worked to get where they are, or how talented they are, that, you know, they're gracious, that they show some kind of gratefulness to their position that they've achieved. And so there's a real issue, I think, when women start to behave in ways that are, you know, perceived as bratty. I've sung. I've entertained. I've pleased your children. I've pleased your wives. I've pleased you, you sons
0: of bitches. And you can't deny that! And that is when Hollywood started deploying an old word in a new way. Now, a diva was a particular kind of female star, a bratty one.
1: And I'm emotional, yeah. I'm a woman. I'm emotional. I'm not
2: something you wind up and put on a stage that sings Carnegie Hall album and you put her in a closet and forget to invite her to the party.
0: The press reported on Judy's diva behavior, say that she was late or a no-show or a flake, without mentioning that maybe it was because the studio had turned her into an addict that maybe the problem was that the studio had forced her to have an abortion and was spying on every moment of her life. Nah, Judy was simply difficult.
1: I don't want to hear any
0: resentment
1: from anybody else now about how difficult I
2: am. I am the result of an audience,
0: of critics, of what people have made me. Difficult could be a career killer. So most actresses did obey their bosses and their fans and the press at the expense of their lives. Better that than to be a diva.
4: And I think that what's kind of interesting about the word is the fact that it's always been defined in opposition to something. In opposition to the ladylike, in opposition to the well-behaved, in opposition to what the kind of male-dominated press or studio system or music industry would want from you.
0: But at least Judy Garland was allowed to succeed. In the pretty much all white studio system, a lot of women couldn't even get in the door. Until the 60s turned into the 70s and a new generation of divas ascended with powerful voices that dominated the music charts. Cher and Aretha Franklin and Diana Ross, they were demanding to be heard. And because they made demands, they were called divas too.
4: Whatever is expected of a white woman to be great, you know, kind of gracious in, in her success or her talent, then I think that was doubly expected, particularly of, of black women in, in America. Yeah, and Streisand with her kind of Jewishness as well, being outside the norm of what female beauty was supposed to look like.
0: But let's start with Streisand. Indeed, she did not fit the mold. And in a move that indicated that a new kind of diva had arrived, her screen debut, Funny Girl, is about how her character does not fit the mold.
4: Listen, girl. Ow. <laughs> please, you've got to face facts. You don't look like the other girls. You've but got I... skinny legs. You stick yeah, out. But yeah, but... And you are out. Yeah, you... I'm sh- just trying to tell I'm you sorry,
1: something.
4: Kiddo. Why don't you just give me a chance? Uh, look. I'll do a terrific
0: time step. So oh, and you know what? She doesn't care. She knows that she has talent. She knows she'll hit the top. And she does. When you're gifted, then you're gifted. These
4: are facts! I got no axe to break! Hey, why are you, blind?
0: Streisand made a career out of this. Movies in which she conquered the haters again and again. And Funny Girl became one of the best-known examples of the kind of movie that music divas make when they want to become movie divas. Which is definitely a thing.
1: I kind of think that, like, there's a sort of grass is always greener effect when it comes to, like, the divide between musical stardom and movie stardom.
0: That's film critic Charles Bromesco. In an article for Vulture, he took a look at divas who have conquered music and then tried to conquer Hollywood. And it got me thinking, being a true diva means having just endless ambition. I did this major thing. Maybe I could do this other thing, too, right?
1: Yeah, what's the next great challenge? Uh, And it's weird because in a lot of these movies you'll see that the characters they're playing are uh, an expression of that exact thing. A lot of them play sort of versions of themselves or how they're known to the public. And one of the key characteristics of, of that sort of type is always, you know, the unsatisfiable ambition, always looking for the next big milestone of your career.
0: Okay, well, since we're on the subject, when a diva goes to Hollywood, what kind of movie does she want to make?
1: We get really two main narratives, the first of which is about someone who has not yet achieved stardom, who is a dreamer, needs to make that jump and either get out of their small town or maybe, you know, they're part of the big city and take over the city, the industry, realize their dreams.
0: Yeah, no, totally right. The star is born plot. I mean, every generation's diva feels obligated to remake that for some reason.
1: Yeah, I think uh, the thing about A Star is Born is that this is a role you can only play if you're bringing your own persona to it. It's not just about having the skills required to make someone believable as an overnight pop sensation, but really bringing your own persona to it so that the role fits into your own story. And people find that sort of rhyme, that that parallelism, very exciting. I get it.
0: Okay, then what's the other kind of movie?
1: And then the close corollary to that is the movie that joins a main character, who has already achieved that fame and they are faced with some sort of crisis of conscience and they have to stay true to their principles, their integrity, usually artistically and personally.
0: Okay, right, right, right. And those are usually biographies of other giant legends, right? Like JLo playing Selena or Madonna doing Evita. Okay, so that makes me think only a diva can play a diva. Just any old movie star could not pull that off.
1: Oh my God, that's right. Yeah, I mean, these are both major. Uh, J-Lo is Selena, I think... In a role like JLo as Selena, or yeah, someone like Madonna as Evita, it's not so much a disappearing into the role, but the melding of two iconographies. Like, it's you know that you're watching JLo as Selena, and so the character is the meeting point of those two. It's
4: hard to describe. I just had this feeling like my dreams were the same as the dreams of all those people who are out there in the audience. Like, all their hopes were centered on me.
0: Or it's like when Diana Ross played Billie Holiday in Lady Sings the Blues. I mean, she won an Oscar nomination for it. Now, you don't know how it is when people are looking down at you and laughing at you and think that I'm a loser. And if I go home now, I think that I'm one too. I got to prove it to him. I got to prove it to myself. So divas are channeling divas. You know, Diana Ross is drawing power from Billie Holiday. And then she basically plays the Judy Garland role in a modern remake of The Wizard of Oz.
1: The Wiz is uh, another one that, as you say, makes the comparison explicit. You know, it takes her back to Judy Garland. And it also takes her back to this myth of someone who leaves her home and sort of makes a grand adventure of going somewhere new and becoming something major. Which, I mean, you can call it the trip to the Emerald City or you can call it the trip, you know, downtown through Manhattan. But that's the trip to attaining your dreams, which is, you know, the big banner of, of being a star.
0: So there you have it. Audiences like movies that bring a diva briefly back down to human size. We want to see her live like us, but then we want to see her ascend back into the heavens. Or, you know, will too. Basically, every time a diva makes a movie, she's creating her own mythology. But the risk is, she could be bad at it. Best example ever... Mariah Carey in Glitter. In a world where proving yourself is
4: everything, one woman is about to get the chance to go from unknown to a world she's only dreamed of.
0: Glitter is a low light in Devo Cinema, to the point that Charles Bromesco doesn't even want to talk about it.
1: Mariah Carey, eh, you really went for the jugular right there on that one. That is Mariah Carey for uh, as much as I... You know, respect Mariah Carey, don't want the Mariah Carey fandom coming after me this week.
0: All right, we will let Charles off the hook and let a few Glitter reviews tell the tale.
1: Quote. Glitter deserves yet another title. A star is dull. Quote. Miss Carey has the voice of a dove, but sad to say, the acting range of a parakeet.
0: And finally.
1: We'll be blunt. This star vehicle for singer Mariah Carey is primarily a showcase for her breasts.
0: Harsh. Harsh although not much worse than what gets said to Mariah Carey in the movie as she deals with racism and sexism in the music industry.
1: Okay, we ask ourselves, is she white? Is she black? We don't know. She's exotic. I want to see more of her breasts.
0: When a diva dares to make a movie and it is not Oscar-worthy, critics feel fine giving her all the blame. Like revenge for having too much ambition, for being difficult
1: the term of diva was kind of used as a cudgel, like for a long time to sort of delegitimize women who asked a lot of the people that worked with them.
0: But somewhere along the line, that started to change.
1: I think turn of the millennium, 90s, approximately around that time is when we start to see narratives about pop stardom and who gets to take pop stardom seriously and how seriously.
0: This is the moment that modern divas took back control of the word, both celebrating it and having a sense of humor about it. Here is Jennifer Lopez in 2001, introducing Saturday Night Live. She's wearing a bathrobe.
4: You know, somewhere along the way, I picked up the reputation for being a diva, you know? But I ask you, would a diva be seen on stage wearing this? Come on, I mean, would a diva put up with people talking endlessly about her ass?
0: In the same episode, J-Lo gets into a diva fight with Chris Katan.
4: You are no diva. Oh, Yeah. let's see who the real diva is when all the divas get together and perform with other divas on a program called Divas Live. Yeah, we're not going to kick your diva ass. Oh, bring us on, j What? Divas
0: Live was a real TV special, by the way. Only the biggest names were invited to sing. Whitney and Cher and Aretha and Diana Ross, a young Beyoncé. It made being a diva an honor. Beyoncé even wrote a song called Diva in which she redefines it herself. Diva is a female version of a hustler. But as fans now openly worship divas for their divaness, the relationship between them and their fans is beginning to feel, well, a lot like ancient Rome. Insult a diva? That is blasphemy, punishable by internet death. No wonder Charles didn't want to say anything mean about Mariah Carey and Glitter.
1: It is the idea that you have an undying devotion. Anyone who raises their tongue with a harsh word against them is your sworn nemesis. And there are some fans who won't hear any, you know, nuance, any sort of critique about uh, their graven idols.
0: Fan clubs have assembled into militias. Britney Spears fans are literally called the Britney Army, Rihanna fans are the Rihanna Navy. When stans take to Twitter to defend their chosen goddess, it feels like the Crusades. Rihanna, Navy! Divas are described like they are pagan
1: gods. She is the Queen Bee, Beyonce, and Baltimore's Bayhive did not come to play. They came to slay. It's a weird phenomenon of fans specifically requesting that their idols, you know, commit acts of bodily harm to them. You know, to an extent where you are so overcome with this person's talent and their beauty and their and their poise, you are so overwhelmed by this that you just need them to end it all.
0: Snap my neck, Beyoncé. Crush me with your thighs, JLo. Run me over with a car, Rihanna. Cut my throat, Caligula? Imagine being that diva and having that worship become normal for decades. Even Caligula only reigned for four years. I remember when I was
2: first directing and I saw a wardrobe person bend down and put a shoe on an actor. And I was like, what the f*** is that? Like, that?
0: they can't put on their own shoes? Director Nisha Ganatra is fascinated by diva power and the questions it raises.
2: What if you didn't care what people thought of you? What if you didn't... Uh, have to worry about reflecting on somebody else and you could just be your own self. And nobody um, says no to you. Like no one said no to you for a decade. What kind of monster does that breed, you know? And so we just had fun about like, what, who is the monster? Is there a monster? Is there a secret monster?
0: <laughs> she asked the same questions in her last movie, Late Night, starring Emma Thompson as the longest running female talk show host in TV history. And this year, Nisha does it again with the high note, and the character of Grace, she's someone on the caliber of like you know Janet Jackson, Madonna, um,
2: Whitney Houston, like somebody whose voice and talent blew them away, but also affected culture and through fashion and and dance and just pop culture, you know, just sort of one of those um, really old school like
0: megastars. Grace knows her worth. When her manager suggests that she thank him for her private plane, she's like, "My voice." Bought me this plane. Okay. She is a Check. badass, but Tracy Ellis Ross plays her with so much intelligence that you are aware she's also a human being. Maybe because Tracy understands that story well. Her mother is Diana Ross. What I remember,
2: I was talking to her about moments of like, hey, when you get out of a car, like you're never alone. There's always paparazzi, wherever you go, there's this, there's that, you know. And Tracy just texted me a photo. Actually, it was a little video of her mom getting out of a car at Studio 54 and just like a thousand people crammed into that frame trying to just touch Diana Ross, get a piece of Diana Ross. And there in the tiny little bottom, you can see like is Tracy and her siblings. They're there. They're like holding the hand of the bodyguard and they're just walking through this. And she was like, yeah, I think I know what that's like. (laughs) So I love that image.
0: Diana Ross, the diva and the mother the goddess and the mortal, using her powers to insist on spending time with her kids. Even when she was on tour, she would always come back, cook
2: dinner, be with the kids, make it happen, you know? And that, I got to talk to Diana Ross and say, how do you do that? I like, think that's, that's what I need to learn from her.
0: Nisha, you've put out two films in two years with a newborn. I think I walk
2: around in the industry a little bit like, I can't believe they're letting me in here. And, you know, I still, when I pull up to a studio a lot, even prepping this movie, it was at Universal Studios. And every time that gate went up, I would just be like, oh, my God, they let me in. You know, I just had this like feeling of uh, like the, the kid that snuck in.
0: Whereas Grace would command they open the gates. Which brings us back to where we started the idea that we ordinary humans might be wise to rediscover our childhood divas.
2: And so I think if I could learn from Grace Davis, it would be to like not be apologetic and feel like you do belong and that you have a right to be in this space, this creative space, as much as anyone, which is a really hard thing to feel, you know, especially I think if you're a woman of color or like if we don't have equal representation on screen and behind the scenes, then you're always going to feel like you're the crasher at the party. (laughs) So I guess like I'd love to learn from Grace how to feel like I walked in with a legit invite and not
0: like as the secret crasher (laughs) that I always feel like. You are hereby invited to carry yourself a little more diva. Go ahead, walk through that door. Know your worth, feed your cat caviar, and don't apologize for what you've earned. Whether you are tone deaf or a karaoke god, You are something to sing about. And we are now halfway through Zoom's 2024 episode season. As an encore, we'll bite into political satires when The Daily Show's Jon Stewart unleashes the election comedy that only he could make. Then, we're going to talk about femme fatales with this year's Sundance sensation Emerald Fennel and her star Carrie Mulligan. So subscribe to Zoom on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening right now. As for this episode, it was written by me, Amy Nicholson. Our senior producer and senior editor is Rico Galliano. Stephen Colon engineered and did the sound design. And our ever-evolving Zoom theme music was composed by Martin Ostwick. Graphic design by the fabulous Kim Troxel, And thanks, as always, to Angela Vassagas and Joshua Kornblit at Focus Features. Till next time, stay curious. Hey, Zoom listeners. Love movies? Focus Features would like to invite you to join its loyalty program. Sign up today and access once-in-a-lifetime experiences, including film premieres, set visits, exclusive content, and so much more. Go to focusinsider.com and join for free today.